Hi, I'm Kathy with a C. And I'm Kathy with a K. And this is Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Cherry Hill Township is an affluent community of approximately 75,000 residents in the southwestern part of the state. It is considered a suburb of Philadelphia because it lies just 10 miles east of the city across the Delaware River that separates Pennsylvania and New Jersey. The name Cherry Hill came from a 19th century farm that had cherry trees growing on the property. For residents, there is a little bit of everything available to do. Art, culture, great restaurants, and plenty of retail shops. The Cherry Hill Mall, built in 1961, has the distinction of being the first enclosed shopping mall on the East Coast and remains the area's top destination. In the spring, the township's main attraction that draws residents and visitors alike are the two miles of cherry blossoms lining the road into town. Cherry Hill's motto is, you couldn't pick a better place. But in 1994, for one woman, it became the worst place on earth. Rabbi Fred Newlander was the senior rabbi at Congregation Makor Shalom in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. His wife, Carol, was 52 years old and the manager of a bakery. Together, they had three children, daughter Rebecca and sons Matthew and Benjamin. At approximately 9.20 p.m. on the night of Tuesday, November 1, 1994, Rabbi Newlander arrived home from work to find his wife, Carol, lying face down in a pool of blood on the living room floor. He immediately called 911. According to news reports, he was sobbing and hysterical as he spoke to the 911 dispatcher and kept saying over and over, my wife is on the floor and she's covered in blood. I don't know what to do. What should I do? The dispatcher told him not to touch anything and to go outside with his cordless phone and wait on the line with her for police and an ambulance to respond. The 911 call came in at 9.20 p.m. and Cherry Hill police arrived at the scene at 9.22 p.m., followed by paramedics and an ambulance a few minutes later. Police and paramedics swarmed the house, and the first officers on scene declared Carol Newlander deceased. The Newlander's oldest son, Matthew, was a pre-med student at Rutgers University and worked part-time as an EMT, an emergency medical technician, with Cherry Hill Medical Services. Matthew was at work when the call came in, and of course, when he heard the address, he automatically recognized it, and the call was about a bleeding person. In news articles, he said that, that doesn't really mean anything in the ambulance. The bleeding person could be somebody who got cut, somebody who had a bloody nose, you know, anything like that. So Matthew was in the front seat driving. His partner was in the passenger seat. And as they were driving, Matthew was actually listening to police radio to kind of find out what had happened. He arrived just minutes after the police got there mm -hmm. and noticed that the police and paramedics were already there. He jumped out of the ambulance and ran towards his front door. But two of the EMTs on scene were actually friends of his and they knew his mother was dead inside the house, they physically stopped him from going in mm. and carried him back down the driveway. Wow. Can you even imagine? No, I can't imagine. Carol Litz Newlander was the third of four children and grew up in Long Island, New York, which is one of the wealthiest zip codes in the country, and it's where the Hamptons are located. This is the celebrity hotspot that if you're into those kind of newspapers, uh -huh, use that in quotes? Uh-huh, uh-huh, exactly. <laughs> That's where you'll find it's that. It's the kind of trash you like to read. <laughs> Carol's father was an executive in New York's Garment District, and her family was so wealthy that she and her three siblings were taken care of by a governess, a butler, and a cook. 
Fred Newlander was born in Albany, New York, and grew up in the working-class borough of Queens. His parents were immigrants and ran the local laundry. He was an only child, and he lived with his parents above the family business. When he was a senior at Trinity College in Connecticut, where he was studying religion, he met Carol on a blind date, who was a junior at Mount Holyoke College in Massachusetts, majoring in psychology. Bunch of smarties. I know. After graduating from college, Fred entered rabbinical school and became the seventh rabbi in his family's history. Isn't that amazing? That's super impressive. Fred and Carol married in 1965 and moved to Cherry Hill in 1973 when Fred became the assistant rabbi at a local synagogue, Temple Emmanuel. But Fred was ambitious and wanted to create a congregation that embraced combining the traditions of conservative Judaism with the more modern religious practices of Reformed Judaism, and he wanted to place an emphasis on inclusiveness. He pitched this idea to a dozen or so local families who he knew through the synagogue where he worked, and they agreed it would serve a great need in their community. So in 1974, Congregation Makor Shalom, meaning Source of Peace, was formed. While her husband was building his congregation, Carol Newlander was building a business of her own. As a rabbi's wife, Carol had noticed a need for kosher food for celebrations, holidays, b'nai mitzvahs, and so on, and 30% of Cherry Hill's residents were Jewish. So Kathy, one of my best friends when I was growing up, she was Jewish, and after she graduated from college, she actually married a guy who was in rabbinical school. He was going to rabbinical school in New York, so they moved to Morristown, New Jersey, which is a suburb of New York, Mm -hmm. and I was living in D.C. at the time, so it's a four-hour drive on the turnpike, easy peasy. So I went up there to visit her several times, but the first time I went up to visit her, her husband was away for the weekend. And even in the reform movement, they aren't required to keep kosher. My friends decided that's what they were going to do. Mm -hmm. So the weekend I was up there, my friend said, hey, let's try and figure this out, right? And so one of the major components, of course, is that all of your dishes, whether they're baking or eating, utensils, whatever, you separate the meat and the dairy. But you also have to get food preserved a different way, and it's been blessed by a rabbi. So we go to the kosher butcher in Morristown and we get chicken. And we're like, oh, great. We're going to make this tonight. It's going to be so fun. We get it all ready. We salt it. We pepper it. We put, you know, a little lemon pepper on it. And we sit down to eat dinner. (laughs) And I think three days later, I was still like bloated and thirsty. (laughs) We could not even finish it. It was like you took a bite or two and you're like, oh, my God, there's so much salt in here. I can't even imagine what our blood pressure would have done if we were older than like <laughs> exactly, 22. Exactly. But my friend didn't grow up kosher and didn't have anybody to talk to about it. And this was before the Internet was as big as it is now. And so she found out later that the way that they preserve the chicken and they draw the impurities out is with salt. Ah. And they don't use water. It's just salt. So you either need to not add all the salt that we added, or you're supposed to soak the chicken in water to kind of flush all that salt out. I never knew that. Neither did we. (laughs) (laughs) Haven't had a kosher chicken since. (laughs) So Carol had a talent for baking that she thought she inherited from her grandfather, who owned a bakery in New York. So she started making kosher cakes for a variety of celebrations in the kitchen of the home they moved into in 1975 after the birth of their third child. In 1982, Carol opened Classic Cake Bakery with two other women, and by 1987, they had two locations. They were ahead of the times. They absolutely were. Yeah, cakes are super trendy now. I love baking. Yes, you do. And she does an amazing job. Her oldest daughter is phenomenal. Oh, my God. She makes such good things. She really does. The best cookies literally ever. Oh, my God. They're so good. I'm thinking of them right now. (laughs) 
So in 1987, that was also the year they decided to sell their business to their pastry chef, but Carol stayed on as a paid consultant and business manager. And even with all of the time she spent with her children and her business, Carol was still a really active member of McCor Shalom. Her friends and family described her as intelligent, extroverted, strong-willed, and genuine. Two of her children, their oldest, who was Rebecca, mm-hmm. and their oldest son, who was Matthew, actually both described her as their best friend. Oh, wow. Isn't that amazing? Oh, wow. I didn't read that. She was warm. She was well-liked, but she would not coddle you, and she would always tell you what she thought, which is the perfect combination. Right. <laughs> <laughs> At a press conference the day after Carol Newlander was killed, Camden County Prosecutor Edward F. Borden said that Carol had been beaten on the head numerous times with an unknown blunt object. At the time, authorities knew how many times she was struck, but would not disclose the number of blows. There was no sign of forced entry and there was no murder weapon found. But Prosecutor Borden did say there were signs of a struggle in the front room where her body was found. Now, here's the other thing, too, Kathy, is that In this house, and it was like a two-story colonial on this tree-lined street, their front room was their living room. It was where they received visitors. Sure. It had white carpet, white walls, and white furniture. And that's the room that she was killed in. Oh, my gosh. Both Borden and Cherry Hill Police Chief William Moffat said at the press conference that they wanted to contact two brothers who lived in the area, Daniel and Frank Spinolia, in connection with the crime. The two had been paroled from state prison about two months prior for a series of burglaries committed in the area several years before. Borden said the brothers were on an intensive supervisory probation and the police had been alerted by neighbors about their activities. Borden did say, however, that attention to them was simply part of the investigation at the time and he would not describe them as targets of the investigation. At the time of the press conference, which was about 14 hours after Carol's body was discovered, Borden said it appeared that robbery was the motive and they had very substantial leads to follow up. Authorities learned that Carol had been taking home the day's receipts from the bakery after one of its locations was robbed the month prior. Prosecutor Borden did not say whether or not Carol had receipts with her on that Tuesday night, but the amount she took home was usually between $5,000 and $10,000. That's a good bakery. Not only is that a good number, but this is 1994. Right. So they were hopping on that. Oh, my God. What is in those cakes? Cocaine? (laughs) (laughs) Honestly. (laughs) The mayor of Cherry Hill, Susan Bass Levin, knew the family for 15 years and was called to the house the night of the murder. She spoke at the press conference and said the entire community mourned the Newlanders' loss and shared the grief of the family. The mayor said the Newlanders are a close family— and she knew they were pulling together in this time of need. She said Carol was a very caring and giving person, and what happened was a terrible tragedy. In following with Jewish tradition, burials take place as soon as possible, and the memorial service and burial for Carol was held two days later at Congregation Makor Shalom. Close to 2,000 people attended the service. Two days after Carol Newlander's death, Camden County Prosecutor Borden said that based on a careful search of the crime scene, which included the discovery that her purse and cash were missing from the home, and interviews with a number of people, authorities believed Carol was targeted and the attacker did not choose her home by chance. As we said, there were signs of a struggle. Carol suffered wounds to her wrist as if she put her arms out to defend herself. 
There were carpet impressions from the casters of a living room chair that was moved aside, and a few knickknacks had been knocked off a coffee table. It was a savage beating, with authorities revealing that Carol had been bludgeoned seven times on her head with what they believed was a lead pipe. Prosecutor Borden said they were also looking for the occupants of a car seen traveling through the neighborhood between 7 and 9 p.m. the night of the murder. And as they usually say in this case, they said they were not considered suspects, but hoped they'd seen something. Do you think anybody falls for that and goes, oh, they just want to talk to me? Exactly. (laughs) As the investigation entered its second week and then its third week, investigators did not have any new leads in the case to help them solve Carol Newlander's murder. According to an article on November 19, 1994, in the Courier Post by journalist Bill Shrelau, an unnamed law enforcement source said that police were just treading water in the case. Detectives were not going backward in the investigation, but they were not going forward either. The source explained that there were still many people who investigators had yet to interview, including past and present employees of the bakery where Carol was manager and members of Rabbi Newlander's congregation. More than six weeks after Carol's death, the Camden County prosecutor announced a $35,000 reward for information that was donated anonymously by friends of the Newlander family. At a news conference to announce the reward, Prosecutor Borden was repeatedly asked if Rabbi Newlander had been ruled out as a suspect. Borden acknowledged that there were rumors about the case, including those about the rabbi, but cautioned the press that 98% of those rumors were false. However, Borden's refusal to rule anyone in or out as a suspect led to the rumor mill blowing up with gossip about the state of the Newlander's marriage and whether or not Rabbi Newlander was involved in Carol's death. Prosecutor Borden and Cherry Hill Police Chief Moffitt very carefully dodged questions that were seeking any additional details of the investigation, but Borden and Moffitt also did not add anything to what was already known. Carol's killers authorities had earlier confirmed they suspected more than one was involved, caught her just after she got home from work, and she was also carrying what Borden called a substantial amount of cash. They believed she knew or recognized one or both of the killers and opened the door for them because there was no sign of forced entry. As 1994 became 1995, authorities did not have any suspect in the case, even though the announcement about the $35,000 reward brought in many calls and tips. Prosecutor Borden admitted that time was working against them, and the prospect of catching the killers dimmed with each passing day. In early February 1995, someone with the police or prosecutor's office started leaking details of Rabbi Newlander's private life to the media. There were rumors very early on that the rabbi was involved romantically with other members of his congregation, but most people just discounted this gossip as evil-spirited. Six weeks into the new year, on February 21, 1995, officials at Congregation Makor Shalom announced that Rabbi Newlander was taking a paid leave of absence from the congregation. In a letter Congregation President Sheila Goodman sent to congregants, she said the leave was intended to allow the rabbi to seek counseling and focus on his family. The leave was open-ended, but Ms. Goodman said they hoped to know more in a few months about when Rabbi Newlander would return. The next day, Camden County's Courier-Post ran an article with the headline, Rabbi Suspect and Wife's Murder. The accompanying article by journalists Bill Shrelau and Louis T. Lounsbury cited an anonymous law enforcement source who told them Rabbi Newlander was one of several individuals being investigated in connection with his wife's murder. 
The source said that investigators uncovered some circumstantial material that might link the rabbi to the crime, but did not give the journalist specific information. The source added that robbery was being actively investigated. In response to this article, leaders at Makor Shalom sent out a statement that said, We believe in Rabbi Newlander's innocence, and we share in the grief of the Newlander family. Two days after Rabbi Newlander took a leave of absence, he unexpectedly resigned from Makor Shalom, effective Sunday, February 26, 1995, now almost four months after the death of his wife, Carol. He cited grief over his wife's death, media reports that he was a suspect, and unspecified indiscretions on his part as reasons for his resignation. Sources in the congregation and authorities told reporters the word indiscretions was in reference to romantic relationships with two women before his wife's death. The resignation was announced Sunday morning at a session with nearly 1,000 members of the congregation in attendance that was actually originally scheduled to talk about the leave of absence that was granted to the rabbi. Instead, in light of this news, Congregation President Sheila Goodman announced Rabbi Newlander's resignation. In a letter to the congregation, the rabbi vehemently denied involvement in his wife's death, but said the media coverage and disinformation about the investigation were crushing his spirit. Since his grief and healing were incomplete and knew the media attention and rumors would not go away, the rabbi said he did not feel he could serve congregants as he wished. Matthew Newlander spoke on his father's behalf during the meeting and said his father did not feel he could effectively lead the synagogue anymore. He committed an indiscretion and felt terribly that the congregation had to pay the price for that. Matthew thanked those who had shown kindness to him in the recent weeks and admitted he was not privy to whether his father's decision was voluntary, but implied that he believed it was not his father's choice. He asked everyone in attendance at the Sunday meeting to remember everything his dad had done for them and to keep that in a special place in their hearts. Law enforcement officials who declined to be named said that they learned in the 18 months prior to Carol's death, Rabbi Newlander was having an affair with a member of his congregation. This was discovered after looking at Rabbi Newlander's phone records and discovering almost daily, sometimes several times a day, calls to a female congregant at Makor Shalom, and authorities knew of at least one other affair. In an August 17, 1995 article in the Philadelphia Inquirer, journalist Nancy Phillips wrote that police and prosecutors had announced that Carol Newlander was most likely killed nine months prior by a hitman posing as a delivery man. Joseph P. Audino, the new Camden County prosecutor, said that the rabbi being involved in his wife's death was one of their better theories. Rabbi Newlander's attorney, Jeffrey Zucker, said police told him his client was a suspect, but if they had something, he would love them to come forward with it because all they were doing was putting the rabbi under a huge cloud of suspicion. The investigator's theory about a hitman posing as a delivery man came after speaking with the Newlander's daughter, Rebecca, when they learned that an unknown delivery man made at least two visits to the Newlander home in the weeks before Carol's death. On the night that Carol Newlander died, Rebecca had been on the phone with her mother, and her mother told her there was a delivery man at the door. He was the same delivery man who had come two weeks prior. He had a friend with him and was looking for her husband, and so she said, oh, come on in. So Carol said to her daughter, Rebecca, let me call you back. And Rebecca said, are you sure you don't want me to stay on the phone? And she's like, no, 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 this is the guy from last time. I'll call you back as soon as they're gone. Her mother never called her back. When Rebecca learned that her mom had been killed, 
she was living in Philadelphia, which, as we commented at the very beginning of this, is only 10 miles away. Mm-hmm. She actually drove to her parents' house because she wanted to tell police what she had heard and she wanted it to be fresh in her mind. Oh, wow. OK. So on the night of the murder, she also told police she was talking to her mom two weeks prior. Her mom said, hold on, there's someone at the door. Rebecca could hear her mom, Carol, open the door, chat briefly with a delivery man and heard her mother say, oh, yes, please come in. And Carol said to her daughter on the phone, a delivery man's here, but he has to use the restroom. So let me show him where to go and I'll call you back. And she hung up the phone and then called her daughter back. So it was two weeks later on the night that her mother died that her mom said, oh, it's the same delivery man and he has a friend. Let me call you back. So as she was talking to the police, telling them on the night of the murder what had happened two weeks prior as well, she told them that when her mother called her back, Carol was opening the envelope that had been delivered. And as she was opening it and talking to Rebecca, Carol made the comment, this is odd. They delivered this envelope and there's nothing in here. Ooh. Weird, huh? Exactly. Prosecutor Ardino said there was a strong possibility that the bathroom man was the killer, but the question was why he was sent and who sent him. Cherry Hill Police Chief William Moffitt said investigators checked every delivery service that was in the Yellow Pages. By the way, I love that they checked the Yellow Pages. And if you don't know what Yellow Pages are, (laughs) ask your parents. Ask your parents. So they checked every delivery service in the Yellow Pages and could not find one that had a scheduled delivery to the Newlander home that night. Clearly, the man who knocked on the Newlander's door was not a regular delivery person. On both nights the deliveries were made, Rabbi Newlander was at the synagogue. McCor Shalom's assistant rabbi, Gary Mazo, told investigators that Rabbi Newlander was present on both nights and he remembered it clearly. Rabbi Newlander was at the religious classes that evening and was in high spirits. He also stopped by choir practice and said hello to some of his friends. After months of investigation, authorities had been able to eliminate most people who were close to Carol Newlander as suspects, including other members of the family and workers at the bakery she managed. They said the rabbi remained under suspicion in part because he had a strained relationship with his wife, and a few days before Carol's death, one of the rabbi's sons overheard his parents fighting and talking about divorce. Then, on August 20th, 1995, approximately nine months after Carol Newlander's murder, an article in the Philadelphia Inquirer by journalist Nancy Phillips had the headline, Radio DJ Helps Police Investigate Rabbi. The article said Elaine Sonsini went to police and told them she had an affair with Rabbi Fred Newlander for nearly two years. Ms. Sonsini met Rabbi Newlander when her husband was dying. Although she was Catholic, her husband was Jewish, and Rabbi Newlander went to the hospital to pray for her husband and comfort her. Rabbi Newlander also arranged and officiated at Ms. Sonsini's husband's burial. As she was leaving the cemetery, the rabbi asked her if he could call her. She said yes, and he called her later that night. A couple of days later, he reached out to her and asked if he could take her out to lunch. Miss Sonsini asked that he come to her house instead, and they had lunch and talked for several hours. As the rabbi was leaving, Miss Sonsini said he asked if he could kiss her. She said yes, and they had several romantic kisses, and he told her he wanted to see her again. Their affair began a couple of weeks later on Christmas Eve 1992. By the end of 1993, they were seeing each other every day, and speaking on the telephone five to ten times a day. A few days after Carol's death, Elaine Sonsini said Rabbi Newlander told her that the police investigation into his wife's murder, and they would like to question her. He instructed her not to tell the police about their affair, and to say instead that he was merely her rabbi 
who had helped her through her husband's death and helped her convert to Judaism. As instructed, when Ms. Sonsini first spoke to the police on December 5th, 1994, so this was just a little over a month after Carol had been killed, Ms. Sonsini did not expose their affair. During the interview, the police told her that Rabbi Newlander was having simultaneous affairs with other women, and that caused Elaine to end their relationship. The day after Ms. Sonsini was interviewed by police, she told Rabbi Newlander that she did not want to lie anymore and that she was going to talk to the police. He told her to wait until he could hire a lawyer for her. However, she went to see her own attorney, who arranged for her to meet with the police the following day. When Rabbi Newlander called Ms. Sonsini a few days later to let her know that he hired an attorney for her, she told him she had already spoken with the police and admitted to having an affair with him. He did not say a word in response. Oh, interesting. Ms. Sonsini also told police that she had given Rabbi Newlander an ultimatum in the summer of 1994. So this was five months before his wife's death. Ms. Sonsini was tired of hiding and realized she did not want to continue the relationship because they could not go out in public together. She told Rabbi Newlander that if he did not separate from his wife, she was going to move on to a new life beginning January 1st of 1995. Ms. Sonsini said the rabbi cried and begged her to stay. He told her that he would be fired from the synagogue if his adultery was discovered and a divorce would be too difficult for his children. In response to her threat to leave him unless he separated from his wife, Rabbi Newlander said, just hang in there, trust me, something will happen by the end of the year and promised they would be together by her birthday on December 17th. Elaine Sonsini began cooperating with the police as they looked into whether Rabbi Newlander hired someone to kill his wife. She agreed to arrange a meeting with the rabbi and ask him about his wife's murder while the police secretly recorded their conversation. After Rabbi Newlander agreed to meet with her, he called her and told her there was a news van parked in front of his house and he did not want to have them follow him. The meeting was never rescheduled. Bonjour, parlez-vous français? Me neither, <laughs> despite the fact that I paid for it in college, which is why I need Rosetta Stone, and so do you. As you all know, I've used Rosetta Stone in the past for my German, and it's wonderful. And in fact, my niece is going to be studying abroad this fall, and she's going to be using Rosetta Stone so that she can learn the language and have a much more enriching experience while she's abroad. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. And they have speech recognition, which gives you feedback on your pronunciation. They also have two different options available to use it. It's available both on your desktop and through an app. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Killer Destinations listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then... 
place a $5 wager on any sport, you'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure. Nearly three years after Carol Newlander's murder on September 15, 1997, a 23-member grand jury was impaneled to probe Carol Newlander's death. Now, among those scheduled to testify were Matthew Newlander, who was the only one of the three siblings living at home at the time, and Rebecca Newlander, who was the last person to speak with her mother right before she was killed, as well as Elaine Sonsini and Len Jenoff, who was a private investigator who was briefly hired by Rabbi Newlander to work on the case. Three weeks into the grand jury proceedings, a friend of Rabbi Newlander's testified that the rabbi asked him whether he could help arrange to have his wife Carol killed. According to the article, Myron Pep Levin gave sworn testimony that the rabbi approached him after a racquetball game in fall of 1994 and said he wished he could go home one night and that his wife would just be dead on the floor. Then Levin said the rabbi asked if he could arrange it for him. Levin said he did not believe Rabbi Newlander was serious until he heard about Carol Newlander's death. The rabbi's attorney, Jeffrey Zucker, said Levin's testimony was patently false. After hearing the testimony of 23 witnesses in December of 1997, the grand jury did not indict Rabbi Newlander in the death of his wife, Carol. That shocked me. I know, especially because of the low threshold with respect to indictments. Right. You can indict a ham sandwich. Exactly. I have no idea if in New Jersey, a prosecutor is required to put on the defense evidence as well. Most states do not require that. I didn't realize any states required that. California requires it. Wow. In an indictment here, you're supposed to put on the defense case as well. So but if you're going to get indicted, get indicted in California. That's what I'm hearing. Yeah, but it's <laughs> but it's also the prosecutors who do it. You don't have a defense attorney in there. Oh, they put no, on the, the defense. the prosecutors put on the defense. Oh, see, that's bullshit. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I caught myself. They're, the prosecutors are like with their fingers behind their back. Yeah, exactly. I put on the defense case. <laughs> right. Um, their defense is they had no defense. Right, exactly. <laughs> This guy, Levin, that the rabbi was playing racquetball with, believes that he was asked by the rabbi because he had a criminal past. Right. He's kind of a low-level mobster. Exactly. Which I'm sure the place is lousy with him. Oh, you know I'm sure. what I mean? Yeah. Because we're not stereotyping <laughs> at all. At all. At we, all. And you know what? We never do that with the mob. Not ever. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a long time since we've done that. It actually has been. Yeah. There's a couple things we haven't done recently that we're going to have to do again. We got <laughs> hopping up and down last week. That's true. We'll get there. One year after the failed indictment, and now almost four years after Carol Newlander was killed, Rabbi Fred Newlander was arrested on September 10, 1998, and charged with conspiracy to commit murder and accomplice to commit murder 
for allegedly arranging the 1994 bludgeoning death of his wife, Carol. Camden County Prosecutor Lee Solomon said they were not alleging that the rabbi killed his wife himself, but rather hired someone to do it. No other arrests were made at this time, and Prosecutor Solomon declined to say if there would be any additional arrests in the case. Rabbi Newlander was arraigned later that day, pled not guilty, and was released on $400,000 bail after surrendering his passport. Although prosecutors admitted the case was entirely circumstantial, Newlander was charged in January 1999 after a new grand jury indicted him. Almost two years after Rabbi Newlander was arrested for conspiracy to commit murder, police arrested two men and charged them with murdering Carol Newlander almost six years prior. So, Kat, this is 2000. So it took six years to get to the point where they're actually arresting the people that they believe committed the murder. One man was named Len Jenoff, and he was a longtime friend of Rabbi Newlander and the private detective who the rabbi hired to help him find out who killed his wife. Jenoff was charged with murder and conspiracy to commit murder and was accused of arranging the killing at the request of Rabbi Newlander. The other man was Paul Daniels, Jenoff's roommate, who was charged with murder and conspiracy to commit murder and accused of wielding the fatal blows with the lead pipe. The arrest came three days after Jenoff and Philadelphia Inquirer reporter Nancy Phillips met with the Camden County prosecutor Lee Solomon and his homicide investigator Martin Devlin. At this meeting, Jenoff admitted to his role in the murder of Carol. Jenoff told the prosecutor and the investigator that after more than five years of holding in this secret, he could no longer live with his guilt. He told investigators that Rabbi Newlander told him that the woman he wanted dead was an enemy of Israel and that the crime could be forgiven because it was for a good cause. Jenoff stated that he did not know at the time the victim was the rabbi's wife, Carol. Jenoff's bail was set at $200,000 and Daniel's bail was set at $400,000, but neither man could afford to pay the bond, so they were held in the Camden County Jail. Prosecutor Lee Solomon said that in light of the new information that tied Rabbi Newlander directly to the crime, he was considering refiling charges against the rabbi as a capital crime and seeking the death penalty. On June 2, 2000, Len Jenoff pled guilty to aggravated manslaughter. Six days later, Paul Daniels pled guilty to aggravated manslaughter and robbery in the theft of Carol's purse. As part of his plea deal, Daniels agreed to testify against Jenoff in case something went wrong with Jenoff's plea deal with prosecutors. Two weeks later, on June 20th of 2000, Camden County prosecutors announced that they would seek the death penalty for Rabbi Fred Newlander in the November 1994 murder of his wife, Carol. The rabbi was already facing murder and conspiracy charges but he was charged in a superseding indictment by the Camden County Grand Jury that elevated the charges to capital murder, felony murder, and conspiracy. The grand jury found that the crime met New Jersey's legal standards for a death penalty case because it involved murder for hire and was committed during a robbery. Rabbi Newlander was arraigned the next day before Camden County Superior Court Judge Linda Rosenzweig. Although Newlander had been out on $400,000 bail since he was first charged in September 1998, the judge revoked his bail in light of the new charges against him. Despite his attorneys vehemently arguing that he should remain free, Judge Rosenzweig said the prospect of the death penalty raised the stakes and might cause the rabbi to flee. Here's something interesting that came out of this bail hearing, Kath. 
all three of the Newlander children were in the courtroom at the time. Rebecca was 29, Matthew was 27 at this time, and now Benjamin was 24. When the rabbi's lawyer, Jeff Zucker, told the judge that Newlander had his family's support, James Lynch, the first assistant county prosecutor, said, To represent that Matthew Newlander is here today in support of his father is untrue. Nothing could be further from the truth. I can represent that as an officer of the court. Wow. Clearly, at least one of his children doesn't support him now. Exactly. That's a big deal. Right. On September 29, 2000, Rabbi Fred Newlander's attorneys asked for the murder trial to be moved from Camden County, New Jersey, to another county due to the six years of negative publicity in the slaying of his wife, Carol. The defense request was denied by Camden County Superior Court Judge Linda Baxter. Jury selection began on August 20, 2001, two months before the trial was scheduled to begin. Like last week's episode, this was done to ensure they could find jurors who had not been unfairly influenced or prejudiced by years of press on the case. On October 15, 2001, almost seven years after Carol Newlander was murdered in her home, trial began with Judge Baxter presiding. Nine women and seven men were chosen to comprise the 12-member jury and four alternates. After opening statements, the prosecution first called Elaine Sonsini. She testified for five hours, providing many details about her two-year affair with Rabbi Newlander. She also testified that before his wife was bludgeoned to death, the rabbi told her he had a dream that violence was coming to Carol and predicted it was going to be a tumultuous fall. In an October 17, 2001 article by journalist Emily Lounsbury in the Philadelphia Inquirer, Ms. Sonsini's cross-examination by defense attorneys was described as blistering. Defense counsel Jeffrey Zucker's first question was, have you ever taken any acting classes in New York? And she said, well, no, but when I was 17, I took some in Philadelphia. I'm assuming that's how she sounded. (laughs) But of course, the assumption was that Zucker was trying to get across to the jury that he didn't believe a word out of her mouth and it was all an act. And there was a lot to cross-examine her on as far as her credibility goes. Absolutely. Zucker also asked her if she'd ever been afraid the police would consider her a suspect in the murder, and Elaine Sonsini's reply was no. She was afraid Fred Newlander would kill her. Zucker sarcastically and rhetorically asked how she could be fearful of him if she was still having sex with him. Good question. I agree. On Thursday, October 18, 2001, the Newlander's oldest son, Matthew, testified. He was a pre-med student living at home and working as a Cherry Hill EMT the night the call came in. According to a Philadelphia Inquirer article by journalist George Anastasia, Matthew, now 28, and in his first year of residency, spent nearly two hours on the stand. He testified to a shouting match his parents had two days prior to his mother's death. Carol told Matthew to say goodbye to his father because he was leaving the house permanently. Carol, who was crying and upset, then asked her husband if he wanted to try to save the marriage, if he wanted to seek counseling, or if he just wanted a divorce. Matthew testified that his father answered that he did not want to save the marriage, and it was over. Matthew testified that he was extremely close to his mother and was devastated when she was killed and when his father admitted to being unfaithful to Carol. Matthew said he had not felt the same about his father ever since. But his most riveting testimony was when he talked about the seven-minute ambulance ride to his childhood home on the night of the murder. He said the reports they heard over the radio were confusing and contradictory. There was talk of a knife wound, a gunshot, a possible suicide. 
It was unclear whether the victim was male or female, but regardless, he knew it was one of his parents. When they turned onto his street, Matthew saw police cruisers parked from one end of the street to the other with their lights flashing. He could see an ambulance already parked in front of his home. As he turned the corner, he spotted a paramedic vehicle that had been dispatched from a local hospital. Paramedics are more highly trained and better equipped to deal with life-threatening situations than local ambulance squads staffed by EMTs like himself. As he got closer to the house, he saw the paramedic vehicle's lights stop flashing and the truck slowly pull away. Matthew knew their services were no longer needed and that it was a bad sign. Can you imagine? No. Matthew said as he pulled up to the front of the house, he jumped out of the ambulance and rushed to the front door. As Kathy said earlier, his EMT buddies blocked him and physically carried him back down the driveway so they could not go in to the scene of his mother's murder. That was when he saw his father. Matthew testified that his father appeared calm and collected, but that he would not meet Matthew's eyes. Matthew said he asked his father one question after another, Dad, what is the matter? Where's mom? Is she okay? Is she dead? Do you know what happened? Did you see her? Matthew testified that the only response he got from his father after all of these questions was, everything is going to be all right. You know, I also read that when he had time to think about what had transpired the night that his mother was killed, that when he got to the house and he rushed out of the ambulance up the front steps to get to the front door, he actually passed his father. And his father never said a word to him. He remembered that in hindsight. Right. Oh, wow. You know, this is How a man. crazy. Yeah. You're going to grab your kid. Or at least call out to him or do something. Len Jenoff, the man who confessed to investigators that he and his former roommate Paul Daniels were responsible for Carol Newlander's death, took the stand after Matthew. Can you imagine, though, getting on the stand after that testimony? No. Holy cow. Oh, You caused no. that pain. Yep. Jenoff's credibility was a major issue in the trial, having admitted several times after turning himself in that he'd lied about his background and other things to impress people. Prosecutor James Lynch tried to demonstrate that Jenoff's account of what happened was believable and asked him how he came to know Rabbi Newlander. According to court records, Jenoff was a recovering alcoholic who had recently separated from his second wife, had lost his job, his house, and his kids. When he met Rabbi Newlander for the first time in June of 1993, he sought counseling for his low self-esteem and dealing with all of the stuff that was going on in his life. At their first meeting, Jenoff told Rabbi Newlander about his background. As Jenoff did throughout his entire life, he lied about having a college degree and about being previously employed for years with the Baltimore Police Department and the Central Intelligence Agency. According to Jenoff, he always created a false background for himself because it was exciting and he had always suffered from low self-esteem. His meetings with Rabbi Newlander continued, and Jenoff began attending Friday night services at Makor Shalom. Jenoff said the rabbi made him feel important and gave him back his self-esteem and self-respect, describing Rabbi Newlander as, my mentor, my friend, and my rabbi. Meanwhile, Jenoff had been attending Alcoholics Anonymous meetings on a daily basis. Starting in March 1994, so eight months prior to Carol Newlander being killed, AA meetings were held at Makor Shalom every Tuesday night from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Jenoff would arrive at the synagogue around 5 p.m. to set up for the meetings and to see the rabbi. They would walk together around the synagogue's parking lot and talk about a variety of topics, including Jenoff's passionate desire to work for the Mossad, the Israeli equivalent of the CIA. In March or April of 1994, Rabbi Newlander asked Jenoff if he would kill for the state of Israel. 
Janoff answered that he would, explaining that the rabbi had become the most important person in his life other than his own son. Janoff testified that when he thanked the rabbi for everything he was doing for him, Rabbi Newlander responded, maybe someday you could do a favor for me, and Janoff said he told the rabbi he would do anything he asked. In late April 1994, so almost two months after Janoff had started the AA meetings at Makor Shalom, Rabbi Newlander again raised the topic of Israel and told Janoff that an evil enemy of the state of Israel lived in Cherry Hill and explained that this person was so bad they should be killed. Janoff testified that a week later, in early May of 1994, they again discussed this enemy of Israel, at which time the rabbi looked at Janoff and asked if he was man enough to kill the enemy. The rabbi then drove Janoff to his home and said the person he wanted him to kill was his wife, Carol. He told Janoff that he would pay him $30,000 and would get him his dream job with the Mossad. Janoff testified that he and Rabbi Newlander discussed the details of Carol's murder, including when, how, and where. Janoff claimed that the rabbi wanted Carol murdered immediately. He testified that various methods were discussed and ruled out, including using a gun to shoot Carol and wounding the rabbi outside a New York theater, using a stun gun, using a knife, killing Carol in the parking lot of the Short Hills Mall, or shooting Carol in Camden, where she went to bi-monthly community service meetings. By early June 1994, Janoff testified that Rabbi Newlander decided he wanted Carol's murder to occur in their home on a Tuesday night, explaining that he would be at synagogue, which would provide him with an alibi. The rabbi also said Matthew would not be home because on Tuesday nights he worked as an EMT. The rabbi said that it was the best time and place because it would look like a robbery or a burglary as long as Janoff did it right. He told Janoff not to use a knife as it would look too professional, suggesting that he use a blunt instrument so that it would look like a robbery gone awry. Janoff testified that shortly after 8.30 p.m. on November 1, 1994, he and his roommate Paul Daniels arrived at the Newlander home and killed Carol Newlander. Under a six-hour cross-examination, Janoff admitted that he lied to authorities when he first met them, remember this was with the prosecutor, the investigator, and the reporter in a diner, when he said he did not know who the intended victim was and did not personally inflict any of the blows that caused Carol Newlander's death. Janoff told the defense attorney that he was trying to confess, but at the same time, he was trying to minimize his involvement in it because he was scared. Okay, Kath, really quickly, Mm -hmm. how he got to the diner, we've actually referenced this journalist a few times as we've done this podcast. It was a woman named Nancy Phillips who worked for the Philadelphia Inquirer. Mm -hmm. She actually became very good friends with Len Janoff during this whole ordeal. And I mean, from the very beginning in 1998, when Rabbi Newlander was first arrested to, you know, where they are now, where they're at trial. And this is partly because he was the private investigator for the rabbi. Right. And he was a great source of information for her. Right. So Jennifer later said he kind of developed a crush on Nancy Phillips and she was a very pretty woman. And that's why he kept talking to her. That's what led them there. Jennifer had been talking to Nancy Phillips about confessing. She was supporting him in this, and she was the one who drove him to the diner that day at his request, and he asked her to go with him. And she was obviously nurturing this relationship for for, a very long time. Yes, for years. Years. And in in fact, when the defense was preparing for this case, they tried to get her notes. Right. 
And it went round after round after round. Exactly. So the defense attorney subpoenaed her notes and the Philadelphia Inquirer was like, no, 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 no. Sorry, our sources are sacrosanct. Our notes are sacrosanct. You're not getting them. And the courts never ordered her to produce them. Well, correct. And it actually went through a couple of different levels, including going all the way to the New Jersey Supreme Court. Which I'm totally cool with. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. During testimony by Paul Daniels, the other hitman, he revealed additional details about the night of the murder and said that both he and Jenoff went into the Newlander home carrying a length of pipe. Jenoff went into the house first and then told Daniels to come in. Daniels testified when he went inside, Carol Newlander was lying on the floor bleeding and he struck her two more times on the side of her head saying, I hit her pretty hard. Daniels said Carol was already motionless when he entered the house. During cross-examination, defense attorney Wickstead focused on whether or not Daniels had any dealings with Rabbi Newlander about the murder, and Daniels said he did not. Wickstead also tried to get Daniels to admit that the two men had actually gone to the house to commit a robbery, but Daniels insisted the intent was not to rob her, just to kill her. So, Kath, coming back full circle, the daughter Rebecca said that her mom was on the phone two weeks prior to the murder, and mom said, oh, hey, somebody's at the door, let me get that. What the mom also told her daughter at the time was, this is the package that daddy told me was going to be delivered tonight. So Rebecca specifically remembered that line and told it to the detectives. You know, the other interesting thing about that, Kathy, is that in addition to trying to get the reporter's notes, the defense was trying to stop Rebecca from being able to tell that story on the stand. Oh, that's interesting. Because the defense claimed it was hearsay that Rebecca heard. But even all the way up to the Supreme Court, the verdict was this wasn't hearsay because there is a state of mind exception to the hearsay rule. And Rebecca was sharing what Carol's state of mind was at the time of this phone call. Exactly. They weren't trying to prove the truth of the statement that it was a package for the father. She was simply saying this was what my mother's understanding was. So there was an exception to hearsay. Ten days after trial began, on October 25, 2001, the prosecution rested its case. When the defense presented its case, the first witness was Rabbi Fred Newlander. During his testimony, Newlander said he loved his wife like a sister and revealed that they had agreed they would have an open marriage, but admitted to his knowledge his wife never did. The rabbi said that Carol had a successful business and his synagogue was doing well, so both of them were focused on things that took up a lot of their time. They had children and a social life in common, but their intimacy suffered. During cross-examination, Prosecutor Lynch focused on Rabbi Newlander's affair with Miss Sonsini, his lies to the police, and inconsistencies with testimony given by other witnesses, including his son, Matthew. Newlander repeatedly responded to Lynch's questions about past comments by saying, I don't deny it. I don't recall it. When Newlander said he did not tell police about his affair with Elaine Sonsini for five weeks because he was too ashamed, Lynch asked if his personal interests were more important to him than solving the murder of his wife. Newlander said yes. I can't believe that. Even if he was thinking that, I can't believe you would actually say that in court. Honestly. When Lynch played the tape of the 911 call the rabbi made the night of his wife's murder, he accused him of acting and pointed out that he never touched his wife's body to aid her or to make sure she was dead while he waited for the police. 
Newlander responded that he did not know what to do and stayed away because he could not deal with it. Lynch also pressed him on his testimony that his relationship with Elaine Sonsini was insignificant and he never loved her. Yet, Lynch read love letters written to Ms. Sonsini after the murder in which the rabbi professed his love again and again. Newlander said he wrote the letters because he wanted their affair to continue and finally agreed he did love her, but insisted they never considered getting married. On November 1st, 2001, exactly seven years to the day Carol Newlander was murdered, the case went to the jury. After the jury deliberated for 27 hours over the course of five days, they declared they were deadlocked, and it was later reported that they were deadlocked at a 9-3 in favor of conviction. One month after the trial began, a mistrial was declared. Of course, Camden County prosecutors immediately refiled charges And in May of 2002, the retrial was moved out of Camden County to Monmouth County, about an hour northeast. Rabbi Fred Newlander's second trial began on October 21, 2002, almost eight years after his wife's murder. Camden County First Assistant Prosecutor James Lynch was again the prosecutor at the retrial, and many of the same arguments were used from the first trial. Now, one interesting thing here, Kathy, because we've talked a lot about Matthew Newlander's testimony in the first trial, and kind of how vocal he had been about how he felt about his father's actions that night. Mm -hmm. When Matthew testified at the second trial, he only referred to his father by his first name. Oh, wow. And he would say, Fred was standing in the driveway and he never stopped me. Or I asked Fred, blah, blah, blah. And Fred answered this way. Wow, that speaks volumes. Yeah, it really does. The rabbi's new attorney, Michael Riley, focused on attacking the credibility of all the prosecution's key witnesses including Elaine Sonsini and Len Genoff, and trying to establish that Genoff and Daniels acted on their own. Unlike the first trial, Rabbi Newlander did not take the stand in his own defense. After seven days of deliberation, on November 20, 2002, the jury announced their verdict on the three counts against Fred Newlander. Guilty. Almost two months later, after the jury was unable to reach a unanimous verdict of imposing the death penalty, Rabbi Newlander was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole in 30 years. He appealed his case in 2006 and 2016. Both times the verdict was affirmed. In January 2003, after Rabbi Newlander's second trial, Len Genoff and Paul Daniels received 23-year terms with the possibility of parole after 10 years for their roles in the murder of Carol Newlander. Both men were released from prison in 2014 after serving 14 years. Rabbi Fred Newlander is now 80 years old and remains incarcerated in the New Jersey State Penitentiary in Trenton. He will be eligible for parole in 2030 when he will be 88 years old. Thanks for listening. We appreciate you telling your friends, family, coworkers about the podcast and giving us your support. And if our appreciation is premature, please get out there and tell your friends, family, and coworkers. <laughs> we still love doing this, so you're still stuck with us. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and you can find us at Killer Destinations Podcasts on Facebook and Instagram. 